Welcome to Ask Away with Vince and Joe Vitale and hosted by Michael Davis. Vince and Joe Vitale are currently leading the Zacharias Institute. Both hold doctorates from the University of Oxford, Vince in philosophy, and Joe in women in the Old Testament. In a world that increasingly sees the Christian faith is irrational and irrelevant, it is more important than ever for believers to be prepared to give a defense for the faith. Ask Away is brought to you by Robbie Zacharias International Ministries. It's time to Ask Away. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ask Away with Vincent Joe Vitale. I am your host, Michael Davis. Our culture is awash in contradictory perspectives on sex, and the church has not been immune from this confusion. The concepts of chastity, purity, and biblical marriage have at best been relegated as quaint and outdated, or at worst are seen as oppressive and hateful by our increasingly secularizing culture. Even more concerning is that there has been an inconsistency on this topic for many churches. How is a faithful Christian supposed to view sex and marriage? Why would God even care about who someone sleeps with? But before we get started, I am excited to announce that we have joining us in our studios, Dr. Julie Slattery of Authentic Intimacy Ministries. Julie, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your ministry, and about your new book, Rethinking Sexuality, God's Design, and Why It Matters? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, about myself, I live in Akron, Ohio. I'm just a kid from Akron, as they say, when you grew up there. And uh, run this ministry called Authentic Intimacy that it took me a few years to realize what we were actually doing, but we were discipling women in their sexuality, which even sounds weird to say out loud. (laughs) Uh, And then the new book, Rethinking Sexuality, is really taking that discipleship model of sexuality and teaching other people how to do that. And again, people are going to be kind of freaked out by what are you talking about? But it's challenging the paradigm of how the Christian church has addressed or even not addressed sexual issues. And I think pressing into a more biblical uh, focus and paradigm of addressing sexuality through the Great Commission of making disciples of all nations. So that's the big picture. And I know we'll spend a lot of time unpacking that as we talk today. It's great to have you with us, uh, Julie, and just spending lunch together. We've taken so much from what you had to share in your ministry already. So really, thank you for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Well, to get us started, this is a question that we hear all the time. Uh, why do Christians make such a big deal about sex? Why would God even care about my sex life? Yeah, so really good question. And I think traditionally, Christians will feel like the only thing that people talk about in the church is wh- you know, what to do related to sexual moral issues and what to believe, most importantly, what not to do. Don't think about this. Don't do this. You know, this is wrong. Maybe some hope about someday you can get married and sex will be wonderful. And I think that this kind of question comes out of that thinking, like those rules just seem like they don't make sense to us. They're not relevant in my life. And so we've got to start back by asking a very fundamental question. Why did God create us as sexual people? And you know, I think a lot of Christians never ask that question. They just kind of assume that sex is bad, that sexuality is bad, and that God just wants us to manage it. But God intentionally created us as sexual people with sexual feelings and thoughts. He made sex the way it is, passionate, vulnerable, intimate for a reason. And that reason is, and this would take a lot of unpacking to do, which I do in Rethinking Sexuality, but sexuality is first and foremost a metaphor to teach us about God's covenant love. And uh, there's lots of ways to unpack that. But if you think that sexuality is holy, first and foremost, because God created it to teach us about his love, 
then all of a sudden it takes on this great significance of why God cares about it. So it's not just about making the right choices. It's about right, having the right mindset. I find that really helpful. And I was thinking it's interesting how with other friends, if they don't care about our romantic life or about our sex life, we criticize them. Mm-hmm. But if God does care, then we tend to criticize him for it. So there's almost a double standard at work there. Uh, or perhaps we don't really conceive of God as a friend. I think that's where I landed when I was thinking that through. Uh, we think of God as this distant creator of the universe. Why would he be interested in something as small as me and my sex life? But actually, a good friend cares about every aspect of who you are, and our sexuality is a big aspect of who we are. And if God is very much a friend, then it makes sense that he would care about that. Mm. In fact, even more than a friend, because you know, a friend is there to come alongside you and support you. But if God is the one who's designed it, if he's the one right. who came up with the, the brilliant idea in the first place, then of course he's going to have an opinion about how we use it well. And um, it's yeah, it's funny how offensive we find it. And yet... Um, the reality is uh, it's a big deal to God because sex is a big deal. And mm-hmm. and I think actually how helpful it is to have someone who has an intention behind it and a design for it when we look at the current culture that we're in right now and, and just the, the, the pain that people are experiencing in this whole area of sexuality and, and just how confused we are. I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago, um, even with you know the Supreme Court nomination going on, mm-hmm. and it was kind of like the furor of Me Too kind of reaching this absolute climax politically and, and, and uh, all the pain behind that, that whole movement. But then at the same time, um, I remember seeing a headline that week in the UK um, for uh, a university where in their welcoming uh, fair for incoming freshmen, they had a stool set up to encourage women to become sex workers to help mm-hmm. them support their way through college. And wow. and to me, looking at those headlines side by side that week, I just thought, wow, we're, we're just so confused about this. We don't really even know what to do with our sexuality. Um, thank goodness there's a, there's a God who would want to help us with that. Yeah, and I think that's so key. Uh, you know what you said, Vince, about... God is our friend, so of course he'd be interested. You know, a friend isn't someone who just asks you a list of moral questions. Mm. Did you do this? Did you think about this? And I think most people perceive that's how God views our sexuality is just, have you been a good boy or girl? A friend is someone who says, I want to know your heart. And if you're in pain, I want to hear your heart. And I want to help relieve that pain and move you towards healing. Most people never think about God concerned about their sexuality on those terms, Mm. that my heart is broken for you. Uh, And so when you talk about God and sexuality, we have to go beyond just what are the lists of rules of right and wrong? What's God's heart for our brokenness and for the confusion you're talking about, Joe? That's really good. Julie, say a little bit more if you don't mind. Because over lunch, I found it so helpful about how you frame this whole thinking about sexuality within a broader narrative uh, and a broader biblical narrative. Yeah. So our narrative is what helps us make sense of anything. It's the larger story that puts the pieces of our life into context. And so uh, we, you got to think about, well, okay, what's my narrative around sexuality? What is the larger framework that helps me understand why I feel temptation, why I feel shame, why God cares about my sexuality. And um, there are really three narratives, I think, that that help us understand this. The first one is a cultural narrative. And the cultural narrative says your sexuality matters because it is a primary way that you express who you are. It's your identity. 
And so nobody should get in the way of that expression. You need to explore, experiment, find out who you are sexually and go with that. Uh, The church predominantly, as long as I've known the church, has used what I call a purity narrative and essentially said sexuality is important because it's a moral category. And God wants you to be sexually pure until you get married, that, that the resolution of your sexuality is getting married. And then once you get a, get married, you know, if you keep yourself pure, God's going to bring this wonderful husband or wife and sex is going to be phenomenal. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, and I think most people listening right now are like, that's like a fairy tale narrative. That's not my life. I cannot well, that's find not yours. No. <laughs> it's not. And it wasn't my life. I mean, right. I grew up hearing that purity narrative and then got married and encountered all kinds of difficulty yeah. in sexuality in my marriage. And there was no help available. Mm. But there are other people who are saying, well, I was sexually abused. So where am I in that narrative? Yeah. Or I've messed up in all kinds of ways, so that story's not about me. Or I'm I'm not married, and so where am I? Is is the end goal again marriage? So I really think that that narrative, although it might be based on some biblical morality, is not broad enough for us to understand God's heart for sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so the narrative that I think is truth is a biblical narrative, which says that God created our sexuality to be this powerful physical way of us experiencing a little bit of what his covenant love is like. The longing for that covenant love, uh, the fulfillment of that covenant love, even the breaking of a covenant promise when people have been betrayed or divorce happens, there's a deep pain and brokenness that's supposed to, even reflected in scripture, teach us about God's heart when his people are not faithful to him. So that's a much broader narrative Understanding that Satan wants to attack holy sexuality, that we all have had this great metaphor tarnished in our lives, and that Jesus is in the business of redeeming that. So uh, so when we talk about that narrative, every person can find their own story within that. And it's so interesting to think about how much sense it would make that the enemy would want to keep us from a healthy understanding of sex and sexuality precisely because it points to God and his covenant love so strongly. Yeah. Like one of the number one responses we get through our ministry is I can't believe how much of my sexual healing has led me to a deeper intimacy with God. Mm. Like I didn't expect that. And, uh, but we should begin to expect that if it's the metaphor, then we should see that overlap. That's great. So let's get to our first user submitted question. This is from Hannah. Most of the verses in the New Testament are so nonspecific, speaking of sexual impurity, that I have a hard time understanding how the church came up with their rules around sex, and even the rules vary greatly. From what I understand, adultery means having sex outside of an existing marriage, but in my experience, the church often applies adultery to single individuals. As an unmarried 25-year-old, what does living a sexually pure life look like for me, both in a non-marriage relationship and as a single person? That's a great question. So um, she's talking about adultery. There's another term in the New Testament called fornication that is more addressing single sex. You know, in other words, having sex with somebody that you're not married to, it's not breaking a covenant. But uh, she's asking the question, what does it look like to live a pure life, a sexually pure life? And I would rather use the term, what does it look like to live with sexual integrity? Mm -hmm. 
And sexual integrity means that all of my sexual choices and beliefs are aligned with who I say I am as a Christ follower. Uh, And what I just presented to you as a biblical narrative is that God created our sexuality to teach us about covenant love. So for a single person, my sexual desires have a purpose. Uh, here on earth, they, they're what kind of makes me say, hey, I don't want to be alone. Mm. Uh, our bodies are testifying to us that we were not made to be alone. Now, the only fulfillment of that on earth isn't just to get married and have sex. You know, our sexuality includes much more than being sexually active. It's what propels us into relationship and to share intimately and to form relationships that have promises attached, like even deep friendships, the body of Christ. And so you're acting out of your sexuality in a very healthy way by pursuing people, um, by revealing pieces of who you are to people. Even though you're not being sexually active, that's a piece of sexuality. But to live with sexual integrity means that I reserve sexual expression, physical sexual expression, to be a celebration of a covenant promise called marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so again, I think thinking in terms of integrity is even more helpful than thinking in terms of am I pure or am I not pure. Mm. That's so good. I think, um, Hannah, the, the way you, you frame the question, it's, it's often uh, put to us in terms of uh, people saying, well, you know, the New Testament doesn't say anything about sex outside of marriage. It's often the way you'll hear it. And, you know, how do we make sense of these terms? And, and I, Hannah, I really appreciate the way you, you, you're right to make a distinction between adultery and sexual impurity. The words do mean uh, different things when it, when it comes to scripture. But, but I think even though this term sexual um, impurity or sexual immorality or fornication, it, it can seem um, hard or vague to take hold of when we just read our Bibles in a vacuum, but actually when we understand the context in which it was written, it really does, as Judy was pointing to, um, hold to that connotation of, of the um, the Jewish cultural understanding of what sex would have been, which is within the marriage. And I think it's helpful. A couple of things Paul says to um, help us understand what he is getting at uh, when he's speaking this language. So one thing he says in 1 Thessalonians 4 is, for it's the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor and not in passion, the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, what's interesting about that phrase is that the Gentiles um, actually had strong views on adultery. In fact, adultery was seen as a crime in the Roman world at that time. But so what is he referring to when he's talking about about the passionate lust of the Gentiles. He's referring to having sex, um, you know, outside of marriage, which wasn't a big deal for the Gentiles. So I think Paul is making that distinction here. Another thing that's that's interesting to me is when you know Paul says, um, actually, he he lords the gift of singleness and says how how wonderful singleness is, and it actually might even be better to be single for the mm-hmm. sake of being able to serve the Lord. But he says, um, you know, for those who um, you know, can't bear to burn with passion, get married. You know, he doesn't say, you know, find a partner or turn to your boyfriend or, you know, whatever it is. He says, no, marriage is the resolution for lust. That's the mm-hmm. place where we take um, the the full expression of sex, as Julie's been saying. So I think it takes a little more digging sometimes. We're not just going to find a tweetable verse in the New Testament saying this is why sex outside of marriage is wrong. But I think when you're digging into the culture, um, it's pretty clear wh- where the New Testament is leading on that. I like this category of integrity being applied here as well. 
because I know for myself, when I became a Christian, my life had to look quite different in, mm-hmm. in this respect. And, and I came to think in, in terms of the category of honesty as well, which I think is closely related to integrity. But I had to ask questions in the context of non-married relationships um, or even uh, situations in which I wasn't in a, a romantic relationship. What did it look like uh, emotionally, spiritually, physically to communicate what was actually true, to have integrity or honesty in terms of what I was saying. And one of the things that I realized with God's help uh, was that if I was always saying, I love you and I adore you, and I could never imagine life without you to someone in the early stages of relationship, I was actually emotionally communicating something which was far beyond where the commitment in the relationship actually was. Or even as a young Christian, if I was doing all of my quiet times together with someone, I was spiritually speaking to a unity with someone that that wasn't yet there. And the same physically as well. Sex is that strongest word in the physical language, uh, a word that means all of me for all of you always. Mm -hmm. And if I'm using that word and that's not actually what I mean, well, then it's no wonder that when breakups happen in the context of relationship, often what we feel is lied to. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even if the words haven't been said that were literally a lie, what's been communicated physically, emotionally, spiritually are often not consistent with what uh, has actually occurred in the relationship. Yeah. I'm glad that you applied it to to aspects other than just sexual, because usually that's all we talk about yeah. is right. sexual integrity. But we're seeing today, even in Christian dating relationships, People crossing a lot of boundaries very early on that just aren't appropriate uh, for the level of commitment and the level of knowing each other that's appropriate. So, yeah. Julie, how do you think that Hannah's statement that the church came up with these rules um, affect the fact that she answers or is the reason that she asked this question? Yeah, well, it's a great question that she's asking because when we look at Jesus's interaction in the Gospels, you know, he says flat out, stop obeying the rules of man and mm. go back to the heart of God. And I do think related to sexuality, the church has made up a lot of rules. We've yeah. become very legalistic and lost the heart of God in many places. Now, the rules, I think, were motivated by, hey, how do we keep kids pure? How do we keep them from bad things? We don't want them to experience sexually transmitted diseases, unwed pregnancies, on and on. I'm a parent. I get that. (laughs) But what happens when the focus is only on rules? You know, don't kiss until you get engaged uh, and don't hold hands. And, uh, you know, how far can you go without you know, technically losing your virginity, and it's all focused on behavior, which it has been, we forget and lose the whole concept of why this is the heart of God and why it even matters. Uh, And people feel like, you know, either you're keeping the rules and you've got it right and it's a legalistic thing, or they realize they can't keep all the rules, so they just give up. And they think biblical sexuality has nothing to say to them. So I, I think her question reveals some of the poor teaching that we've had in the evangelical church and probably the Catholic church that have kept us from getting to the heart of why sexuality matters. So let's get to the next question. This one's from Brad. Forgive me if this question is absurd. I love when people start questions like this. Um, but <laughs> Usually I'm appro- the best questions. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, but I'm approaching my wedding date, and I've become more curious about marriage in the Bible. I have been wondering why Jesus never experienced or chose to experience the relationship of a woman in marriage. I'm not educated on the context of marriage in the Bible, but I'm curious as to why Jesus didn't model a perfect marriage for us. And is there something unholy about marriage that is the reason why Christ never married? Thank you guys for all you do. Faithful follower, 
Brad. Wow, what a great question. Yeah. Yeah, I've never been asked that one, and I've been asked a lot of questions. <laughs> there you go, Brad Nelson. <laughs> well so, done, Brad. Yeah, not yeah, at all. I, I, and I'm going to do my best, but you guys are going to jump in and help me out here. But <laughs> yeah, I think part of it is recognizing that I'm going to go back to something we said way at the beginning of the podcast. Marriage is a metaphor of God's covenant love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think somewhat in our our culture today, Christian culture, We've worshipped the metaphor so much that we've forgotten that it's just a metaphor. And when you look at what Paul taught, you look at the fact that Jesus wasn't married, uh, it's not at all denigrating marriage, but it's saying that although this metaphor is holy and should be honored by all, it's just a picture of something infinitely more important. And Jesus, while he lived on earth, didn't need marriage. He was in perfect union with the Father. Uh, He was about something even more important than marriage. And so that's not at all to say marriage isn't important. It is, and Scripture reflects that. Um, but the way I I think of it is, um, you know, I'm always working on these word pictures that help me make sense of things. If I'm going to take my kids to Disneyland, let's say I want to get them really excited about Disneyland. They've never been there before. So I find a YouTube trailer about all the things they're going to experience at Disneyland and have them watch it over and over and over again, like, we're going there, we're going there. <laughs> Once they've actually been to Disneyland, they don't want to watch the YouTube trailer anymore because they've experienced a real thing. And I think we've got to understand that even the greatness of marriage and sexuality within marriage, it's just the trailer. And if we get stuck on watching the trailer over and over without recognizing that it's supposed to be getting us ready for something that is so much more profound, um, then we kind of lose understanding the importance. And I think that's part of, of what's behind this question. I think that's brilliant. What a great way to put it. And um, even digging into that metaphor a little bit more, um, because Brad, part of your question, you said Jesus didn't model a perfect marriage for us, but actually I think there's a deep sense in which he does. Even understanding Christ as the bridegroom and the church as his bride, um, doesn't he model a perfect marriage for us? And isn't that an amazing inspiration? You know, That's why we have in Ephesians 5, where it right. says, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and, you know, gave himself up for her to, you know, present her pure and, and holy. So in, in the best possible way, I think we do see that picture of, of Christ uh, modeling marriage for us. And yet at the same time, um, I think it's saying something so profoundly valuable, like you've said, um, that that Jesus didn't need to be married. And it just completely busts that myth. People hear that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that um, you know, if you don't get married, you, you don't live a fully human life. You don't live a complete life. And um, and I actually think what amazing, what an amazing hope and picture that is um, to show what a great gift singleness is as mm-hmm. well. You know, that, that we can't buy into that cultural rumor that we have someone to look to, Jesus, who, who, who did it differently. So... Um, yeah, I, I just think w- what an inspiration he is. We can look to that metaphor for him as the perfect husband, but we can also look to him as living the perfect single life. You, you get the best of both. Mm-hmm. Julie, as you were talking, I was thinking of my younger brother, who when my parents first took us to Disney World, there was a massive delay on the flights. We were in the airport forever. And when we finally got off the plane in Florida and we got to the baggage claim and my younger brother, I don't know how old he must have been, maybe five or something, he, he saw the carousels at the baggage claim and he thought that was Disney World. <laughs> and he goes, thanks for taking me to Disney He's World, Dad. I love it. Easily satisfied. <laughs> but not me- after. There's, there's a metaphor there. Yes. <laughs> That's right. But not after he actually went to Disney World. Yeah. Then he, yeah. he wasn't so impressed with the baggage claim. 
carousels <laughs> anymore. Uh, but Brad, uh, it's a wonderful question, and congratulations. You yeah, know, we're excited say, for yeah. you, and I'm, I'm particularly excited that you're asking this question, uh, even when you're saying that you're just curious uh, and you don't have a full understanding uh, of the context in which uh, the Bible speaks about marriage. Let me encourage you, uh, please explore that. Uh, find uh, a pastor, find a friend uh, who's a Christian, uh, find someone who can help you to explore that because, uh, you know, even as I sit here and, and look at Joe and I think about the difference that marriage would be trying to do it with two or trying to do it with two plus God. At one point, the Bible says a, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And often at marriage ceremonies, that's applied to that uh, cord of three strands. You, uh, your spouse-to-be, but also God, who if you put him right at the center of your relationship, will give you everything that you need for that relationship to be healthy and successful. Marriage is not easy. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's that glimpse of the marriage to come, as we've been talking about, but it's not easy. You're going to need a power that's beyond your own, and I hope you'll uh, continue to explore that in the context of great questions like the one you've asked. So this question is from Sarah. Marriage seems to be an ideal relationship before the fall, but Jesus said that there will be no marriage in heaven. The view of marriage and singleness in pre-fall perfection is different than the view of marriage and singleness in, new creation, in the new creation perfection. Why is it different? How should this shape our view of marriage and singleness now? Okay, so another really tough question that is just based on an understanding of theology. Um, Maybe if we put it this way, pre-fall, marriage was still a metaphor, but Mm -hmm. it was a perfect metaphor. Mm -hmm. And so now that we're in the fallen world, the metaphor is really messed up for Mm -hmm. most of us. It's distorted. And even in the best experiences post-fall, there's still cracks in it. Uh, that don't give us a, a great picture of what it is to be loved by God, what what faithfulness is, what intimacy is. But let's not just talk about post-fall and pre-fall, but, you know, post-earth, when yeah. the earth is destroyed, there's a new heaven, a new earth. We don't need the, the model anymore. We don't need the metaphor, even if it's a perfect metaphor it served its purpose. So that would be my best my best way of explaining that. Do you, do you think this is difficult to kind of reconcile for a lot of people in a culture that has so made marriage into an idol? It's like, I mean, I love my wife. I mean, we're not going to be married anymore. Yeah, I've, I hear people have two separate responses to this at the same time. Some people are like, <laughs> like yes. yeah, some are like, no sex or marriage in heaven? How is that possible? Like, that's the been the best part of my life here on earth. Right. And other people are like, oh, thank God. (laughs) This has been the most painful thing in my life. Um, So, yeah, I think think, uh, people have a different response to this based on their experience with marriage and sex. Mm. I love what you said about that, Joe, how Jesus lived the perfect full life, but he wasn't married. And it's like that's a wake-up call for a lot of people that even go to church every week but have never really heard it put that way because we define – in most Christian cultures, maturity as you're married and you have kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can't be mature if you haven't achieved those two things. Mm-hmm. So so I think, again, this is one of those things that we've got to say. Are we depending on religious traditions of man? Or are we going back to the scripture and saying, what does the scripture really reflect maturity looks like? Mm. And not even just uh, within this church. Someone was telling me the other day about a survey um done of kind of the the millennial generation. I'm not knocking millennials. I'm a millennial, so I wouldn't dream of it. But um, but basically, um, uh, 
millennials were asked, you know, when do you consider yourself to be, you know, a grown up or an adult? And um, and they basically said, when we have children. Mm-hmm. So, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't even the sort of earlier marker that it probably was a couple of decades ago, when will you get married? Now it's literally when you have children, that's when you reach maturity, which is a deep challenge. You know, if the Christian faith is saying, actually, no, it's, you know, marriage is not the marker of maturity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an amazing thought to think that people are making the decision to get married at a point at which they don't yet consider themselves uh, to be adults. Uh, Sarah, one other thing I was thinking with respect to your question, uh, you know, you talk about there being no marriage in heaven. And on the one hand, that's absolutely correct. And yet there's there's another sense. Uh, and Randy Alcorn um, says this, and we've already glanced in this direction, but there's this other sense in which there is marriage in heaven. In fact, heaven is all about a marriage, uh, the marriage of Christ, the bridegroom, groom married uh, to his bride, the church. Uh, and I was reading what, what Randy uh, Alcorn, author of Heaven, had to say about this, and I found it uh, really encouraging, actually. And he said, not only is a marriage in heaven, um, but he made this point that, actually, if you're married now, uh, it's also a marriage that you will participate in with the person who's now your spouse. So he put it this way. He said, he realized this at one point, and he had this conversation with his spouse, Nancy. He said, do you know what? According to the Bible, we will be part of the same marriage forever. We are both part of the bride of Christ, and we will have as a bridegroom the only absolutely perfectly good, gracious spouse in all the history of the universe, and we will have that to look forward to, and we will enjoy that together. I thought that was just a really interesting way of thinking about it, that actually marriage is not only a component, but an essential component of heaven. But it's not marriage just between two individuals. It's marriage between us and the bridegroom, Christ himself. But it's a marriage that we will participate in together. So it's not like we have the experience of marriage with someone, and then that is a experience which is in some way completely disconnected from our experience of the afterlife. It is redeemed and made even better. So, Julie, um, looking at the way that churches deal with singleness and marriage, even like single ministries, for example, the main goal of single ministries is to try to get people married. What do you think the church could do differently to be able to really kind of uh, show people what the biblical understanding of sexuality, marriage and singleness Mm -hmm. is? Well, a really good question. Uh, I think you show in two different ways. Number one is consistent teaching. Yeah. Um, and I would encourage any pastor or teacher to take it seriously that your congregation needs to be exposed to repetitive teaching on biblical sexuality, not just one sermon every now and then, not just on the evils of pornography, but what is God's design and purpose in sexuality and how do we walk that out? Um, so there's the teaching component. And if we're faithful to the scripture, we're going to teach out of things like these questions that are being asked. Why wasn't Jesus married? Why does Paul say, you know, he of all people who extols marriage, why is he saying it's better for you to be single? Mm-hmm. And why was he single? I, I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon or a sermon series on those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. And so it starts at the teaching level, but then that also challenges the structure of the church. Mm-hmm. And the structure of the church right now is set up really for people to be going down this path of uh, the traditional family, which, again, I want to say the traditional family of getting married first and then having children and raising those children is a beautiful thing, and it's God's design in terms of how he created us. But it's not the epitome of maturity, and not everybody is going to walk down that same path. And so God designed the body and the church to be not just about 
a marriage and family ministry, but about equipping disciples uh, in all walks of life, all ages, all stages of life, bringing in all different kinds of wounds. And so I think if we took that seriously, we'd restructure the kind of groups we're setting up. You know, why do we have seminars that are only for married people and then others that are only for single? Why do we have generational seminars instead of just saying the whole body of Christ needs to be more of a community that's working towards discipleship together. So, uh, and I know this is a conversation like that Sam Alberry is bringing up and others in dealing with issues around LGBT is where's the place for somebody struggling with same-sex attraction in the church? Because the answer for them probably isn't you got to get married and have Mm -hmm. kids. So what does maturity look like? Yeah. And in Sarah's question, she she spoke about pre-fall perfection and then new creation perfection and you just spoke about woundedness and Mm -hmm. um and I guess it's been heavy on my heart this week so I just received an email from somebody who um had just come out of a a devastatingly abusive marriage had feared Mm -hmm. for her life the life of their children and basically had been shunned by the church and Mm -hmm. judged for leaving her husband and it was just this heartbreaking letter to read and um and I've just spent a week just really, you know, thinking, it's been in my mind and just thinking like, what would Jesus Christ have mm-hmm. to say to her? And um, Julia, I was just wondering from from your wisdom and, and from thinking about this, how do you respond to someone who's just been that wounded and that hurt by their experience of yeah. marriage? Yeah. Well, it's so traumatizing also because what you said is that she's experienced a second wound yeah. of how the church has responded to her. And that's really common, unfortunately, that you've got you know, this primal wound of my family's, you know, been blown apart and I've been betrayed sexually or I've been hurt physically. And then I go to the place that's supposed to be safe and a place for me to heal. And not only are they not helping me, but I'm stigmatized and everybody's judging me and putting the divorce label on me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, again, I think we've got to ask the question you're asking, Joe, what would Jesus Christ do? And sometimes transport ourselves back to when Jesus lived and to realize I'm the Pharisee. Hmm. Like I've become the person in the church that is all about the appearance and all about the rules and all about the behavior and not been the person whose heart is heavy for the people around me who are hurting. I think everybody in Christian leadership has become that person at one point or another, including myself. Uh, and so really getting on our knees as Christian leaders and asking the Lord to confront us, because that's what Jesus kept confronting was, you guys represent me in name, but not in heart. Mm-hmm. And Jesus would be with that woman, grieving with her, yeah. providing for her physically in terms of the provision she needs and helping her children and uh, being a father to the fatherless. And that's what we need to be. Well, guys, we are out of time. Vince, sum it up for us. Julie, I might just throw it over to you if you don't mind. Would you share what you shared at lunch about when you understood that sexual brokenness was relevant to you? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know, part of the problem is that when we talk about this topic, we think, oh, right, sexual brokenness, that's relevant to that sort of person or the person who's been through this or this person with this, you know, desire, which is not the standard desire. 
Uh, and really, one of the key things as the church is that we need to realize that this is relevant mm-hmm. strongly to every single one of us. And you had a great story about how you realized that in your own life. Yeah. And so I kind of lived uh, according to the church's narrative on sexuality, grew up in the church and was blessed by a lot of what I learned and understood how to how to steward my sexuality through high school and college um, experienced sex for the first time on my honeymoon. So from the outside, I could say, I did it right. You know, right. I'm not the broken person. <laughs> right. And you add on to that, becoming a clinical psychologist, you kind of get in the seat of the expert who's helping the other person all the time. And when I say you find yourself in the role of the Pharisee, I mean, I was there. If you read the prayer of the Pharisee that Jesus told, it's, Lord, thank you that I'm not like these other people. Yeah. And in my heart, I was probably, Lord, thank you that you saved me from this. And I didn't experience that. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing it right. And what Jesus is saying, there's a lot of pride there. And you're not seeing who you really are. Right. And so early in marriage, um, sexuality in my marriage was really pretty awful. Uh, it was physically painful. We didn't know what to do with that. Um, there were some se- other sexual issues that my husband was struggling with, um, just things that normal couples are walking through that the church doesn't address honestly. Yeah. And so we're trying to just kind of figure all this out on our own. And I'd say 10, 15 years in our marriage, for me, sexuality represented the worst part of our marriage. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I'm teaching on marriage. I'm counseling people. And it wasn't really until um, I really got called into this ministry of dealing with sexual issues that I recognized there is a lot of sexual brokenness in my life and in my marriage that I've never been honest about. There's a lot of lies I believe about sexuality that I just assume are true. And I've never asked God to heal and to to bring me into truth Um, and I I think, Vince, the thing that really struck me was recognizing that the way I can change the world is by starting with my own heart. Yeah, I can remember being, um, you know, I'm the mom of three boys, being in this grocery store, and my three boys were with me, and there was a Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition on the on, at eye level for my kids and I was so mad you know I took it to the checkout and I'm like why do you have this at the grocery store where my boys can see it and she's like I don't know you have to talk to the manager I fought with the manager <laughs> he's like sorry we're not moving it and I was so mad and I went home and was praying about it and the Lord just started to reveal to me how much of your own life and your own brokenness do you just ignore if you really want to change things, and this is scriptural, you know, it always starts with God, take the log out of my eye first and humble me first. So, um, you know, that's, God keeps us humble that way. We've always got stuff that we need to confess before we ever try to help another person. That's great. Well, it's been wonderful speaking with you and uh, you and your ministry will be in our prayers. And I hope many uh, who are listening will take this as an invitation to be honest about these things, to be honest in the context of community and to ask God to uh, reveal those logs in our own eyes uh, and to ask him to heal as well, that healing that every one of us needs. Julie, thank you so much. Vincent, Joe, thank you for joining me. Thank you all for listening and we will catch you next week. To find out more about our ministry or to donate, visit our website at rzim.org. 
If you're listening in Canada, that website is rzim.ca.